On January 2nd, 2023, just a few months ago, during the first quarter of a Monday night football game between the Cincinnati Bengals and Buffalo Bills in Cincinnati, Ohio, Bills cornerback DeMar Hamlin made a routine tackle, stood to his feet, and then promptly collapsed motionless and lifeless onto the field. As the packed stadium full of people looked on in in stunned and, and eerie silence, and tough football players stood all around on the field of play, shocked and some of them weeping, medical personnel administered CPR, used an AED several times on Hamlin, initiated IVs to try to bring him back. Soon an ambulance was brought onto the field, and after about 15 minutes or so, Hamlin was rushed to the hospital. No one knew what was going on. No one was able to know what the prognosis was, if he was still even alive. It wasn't until several hours later that the world received news on Hamlin's condition when the hospital at 1.45 a.m. announced that he had suffered cardiac arrest, that his heartbeat had been restored on the field, but he was intubated and remained in a coma in critical condition even at that hour. And of course, when that happened, immediately a football game was the very last thing on the minds of the millions who were watching that game on TV and the 65,000 people that were there on hand that night. And one of those 65,000 people in that stadium that night was DeMar Hamlin's mother. Security personnel brought Nina Hamlin and other family members down to the field as soon as Hamlin collapsed. She rode with her son in the ambulance to the hospital. She watched him fight for his life for the next 24 hours before he finally woke up and began the slow process of recovery, a recovery that still continues. Little did she know, though, that night, when she walked into the stadium to support her son, that she was walking into a mom's worst nightmare that night. Later, when asked how it felt to be living that nightmare, she just gave one word. She said it was devastating. Hamlin has since made a full recovery, and as of April 19th, just a few days ago, he had been fully cleared medically to return to football. We'll see if his mom will let him do that. But this is a remarkable story, right? And even though, the fact of the matter is, though, that even though DeMar Hamlin was a big, strong football player, a full-grown man, he was still Nina's son. He was her child. Here was a mother who loves her child deeply, who wants the very, very best for her child, literally sitting on the sidelines while her son appears to die right in front of her eyes. And then sitting helpless with nothing to do but watch and wait by his side as as her child's life hangs in the balance and all of his care and his welfare and his protection and, and his well-being, all of that is completely out of her hands. Completely out of her hands. Nothing she can do. I was thinking about the passage we're studying this morning and my mind went to that incident at that football game. 
Because in this passage, we are going to see another mother, one who is similarly helpless, one who is facing a hopeless and helpless situation, not just in this case for her child, but this is going to affect her welfare and well-being as well, and there's absolutely nothing she can do about it. Nothing. And while the situations are a little bit different, obviously, there is an overwhelming and overall parallel principle here that stares us in the face when we look at this passage, and it's this. We do not control the outcomes of our lives, do we? Or of the lives of those we love, either. We don't control those things. We can't. There's so much out of our hands, and no matter how hard we try, we are not sovereign, we are not all-powerful, we are not infinite. And guess what? We don't like that, do we? That is not fun. We don't enjoy the feeling of not being in control. And the mother here in this passage faced some instances of that kind of uncertainty here. Uncertainty that actually grows to a crisis point in our passage, as we're going to see in a few minutes. We also see, as Pastor Brian mentioned, a prophet who's being commanded and led to go certain places and to do certain things that that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to him. But the one constant in this passage, full of uncertainty, and all of the emotion that comes with that uncertainty that is going to come out of this passage as we read it, the one constant, though, is this all-encompassing, sovereign trustworthiness of the third main character in this account. The trustworthiness of the one true God. His character, his, His word, His plan, all of that. And as Elijah learned here, and as this mother is going to learn here, we must heed the same message. And it is the simplest of messages. And yet it is the one in which we so often fail the most. And it is this. Choose to trust the one true God. Choose to trust the one true God no matter the circumstance. No matter the situation, that trust is achieved through believing what he has said and then obeying what he has said. And this passage presents this principle of trust by moving from a common daily need, which we won't read about in verses 1 through 7, when Elijah is fed by ravens, his daily sustenance is provided for him in spite of it looking like there's no way he's going to be able to be provided for. So the passage moves from common daily need to a greater need for sustenance, a more urgent situation of uncertainty in verses 8 through 16, sustenance for survival. And then it moves to one of the greatest challenges any one of us will ever face in verses 17 through 24. And in each case, the one true God shows himself to be worthy of trust, to be worthy of trust personally, true to daily life. God is working through Elijah and teaching Elijah. He's working through this mother and teaching this mother, and his plan is to do that in us today. A little background, after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two separate nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, 
And though God's chosen people still exist, these people are the people of Israel, God's chosen ones. The northern kingdom in particular quickly rejects Yahweh wholesale in favor of idolatry, and they completely plunge themselves into rejection of the one true God in favor of the worship of other gods. And now about 40 years later, 40 years after that split, we are introduced to the latest idolatrous king. And he's one of the worst. His name is Ahab, who we meet at the end of chapter 16. And early in his reign, Ahab enters into an alliance with the king of Sidon, a city in Phoenicia, just north of the northern kingdom of Israel. And that alliance involves Ahab marrying that king's daughter, a rather infamous woman named Jezebel. Together, Ahab and Jezebel then lead Israel into a committed and debauched worship, wholesale worship of the Canaanite deity Baal. And into this idolatrous mess then in the northern kingdom of Israel, God sends Elijah. God sends a prophet to pronounce judgment on Israel's sin, to preach judgment from God, and also to reintroduce that one true God to them again, the God they have forgotten, the God they have rejected, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their God. So that is all going on in the big picture right now. And so we have this very personal, this very small picture, home-centered account in chapter, uh, in chapter 17, right in the middle of this massive epic battle being waged for the soul of all of God's people between these two deities, the pagan god Baal and the God of Israel, Yahweh. And right here in the middle, we have this little account the battle's going to come to a head in the next chapter, in chapter 18, on Mount Carmel, where God will make his identity plain to his people once again by sending fire down from heaven to consume a sacrifice and a lot of other stuff, too. But here in this little interlude, the identity of the one true God is revealed in real personal clarity to two individuals facing a whole lot of uncertainty. It's not a big picture thing where individuals can easily get lost in what God is doing, or at least it may seem that way. No, this is personal, this is individual, and it's powerful. And that's the message of verses 8 through 16. In the face of uncertainty, trust the one true God. Verses 8 through 11 introduce this personal interlude in Elijah's ministry. And, and the details actually behind this little narrative are actually filled with tons of intensity. A lot of angst here in the details. First for Elijah and then for this widowed mother who, who we're introduced to in a couple of verses. So we could state the truth here timelessly in verses 8 through 11 this way. God's plan may concern you. It is very likely that God's plan will concern you. First of all, look at God's plan for Elijah, his next step in verses 8 and 9. And the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, that widow was there gathering sticks. What God ordains for you will be challenging. 
For many of us, this passage is familiar enough where we don't stop and ponder the details of what God has just commanded Elijah to do. First of all, Elijah is being called to leave a place of rest, a place of provision there at the brook Cherith where he's been provided for his daily sustenance by the ravens, and he's called to embark out into the unknown. That's the first of a lot of red flags here from Elijah's finite perspective, right? In verses 1 through 8, he's been protected from Ahab's wrath. He's been in a deserted place where nobody knows where he is. He's, provided, he's been provided abundantly by God in a miraculous and kind of cool way, right? These ravens bringing me my food every day, the brook not drying up here, even though everything is dry everywhere else because of this famine. But now the brook dries up. God commands him to leave. But where is he commanded to go? He's commanded to go to Zarephath. Many of us don't automatically, and it's not like Jerusalem, right, where we know exactly where that is on a map. First of all, Zarephath is a grueling journey of almost 100 miles to the northwest of where Elijah was at that time. That's, all, that's a hike in a famine, in a drought. Another red flag maybe here, right? But God's direction gets really concerning when we realize where Zarephath is actually located. It's in the heart of Phoenicia. Ground zero of Baal worship. Just a few miles south of Sidon. Jezebel's hometown. That's where God is sending Elijah. A prophet with a very public and a very high profile ministry that he has already embarked on. He's known as the great foe of Baal worship in that region. He's traveling into the heart now of Baal worshiping territory. This is the last place Elijah could have possibly hoped to have been sent. And now as a final blow, in the midst of this drought, God has commanded, ordained, uh, unbeknownst likely to this person, the lowest and poorest member of the social strata who already has nothing, a widow, someone barely able to even care for herself, that's the person God has ordained to care for him. That is a lot of uncertainty, isn't it? And though we can assume these concerns crossed Elijah's mind, he wasn't a robot, how could they not? He nevertheless obeys. And then, and then in verses 10 and 11, we're introduced to this, to this widow. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of the bread in your hand. So here the focus of uncertainty shifts from Elijah to her, to this mother, to this widow, probably a pagan woman with very little to no knowledge of Yahweh, likely a worshiper of Baal, or at least in that culture, right? Part of that culture. And what God ordains for her, not only does it seem challenging, it actually seems harsh, doesn't it? We find out later that she's gathering sticks. We'll see this in just, a, in, in just a second. She's preparing this final meager meal for herself and for her son. And then after that, there's nothing. They assume that at that point, the process of starvation is going to start for both of them. 
And here, out of the blue, this man shows up and he demands food and water. It's pretty harsh. In verses 12 through 14, we really reach the crux of the matter. Because even though God's plan may concern you, his word must direct you in those moments of uncertainty. God's word through the prophet here is speaking with authority to this mother. Look at verses 12 through 13. Elijah said to her, or excuse me, verse 12, and she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. The widow is given a command to obey. And the command seems unreasonable. In fact, she explains why it is unreasonable from her perspective. But Elijah speaks in no uncertain terms on God's behalf. The prophet of God speaking to her. God commands obedience here in verses 12 and 13. This isn't Elijah being rude. Obedience is always the vital accompaniment to trust, isn't it? But that's not all his word provides this mother in the face of uncertainty because he also provides assurance It doesn't just command obedience, but there's assurance that accompanies that command. Look at verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Do not fear, God says. Do not fear, he says through Elijah, because my sovereign hand ensures that nothing is uncertain with me. Nothing. I am able to provide. I have the answers you lack. You and your son from now on will be in my loving and my caring hands so that you can both trust and obey me with complete confidence, with complete assurance and with complete peace. Those loving, caring hands are about to be vindicated in the eyes of this woman because according to verses 15 and 16, God's care will sustain you. It will. He will. Look at the beginning of verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. Counter to every bone in her body running counter to everything she could have ever possibly imagined. This is an immense act of faith here, isn't it? Immense, unimaginable. Similar to what we see in Elijah up in verse 10 when he was commanded to go. But we, again, we see no hesitation, although without question there's massive internal struggle and likely a lot of fear here. But soon enough, God showed this struggling, fearful mom something that is true for all those who choose to trust the one true God, and it is that your trust is not misplaced. Look at the second part of verse 15. And she and he and her household ate 
for many days. This is obviously a miracle that's going to be explained in verse 16, which provides a little more detail into that last statement in verse 15. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. According to the word of the Lord. Just as he said, he did. Our trust is not misplaced because his help is inexhaustible for us. Inexhaustible. For those who choose to trust this God, whether in Israel or in pagan territory, right under the shadow of the temples of Baal, the one true God alone is trustworthy. Personally. Intimately. What he plans is trustworthy. What he speaks is trustworthy. And this woman came to know this God because she saw that he never fails to prove his trustworthiness for her. For her. We don't enjoy the feeling of not being in control. We fear uncertainty in daily life. As a mom, perhaps you try to check every box of care for your children, but you just can't shake that feeling that you're doing something wrong that will maybe harm them in some way. You're concerned about the future ramifications of the choices you are making for your children. Or I just don't have the energy to fulfill my role as a mother today. Or the feeling moms of grown children may have. That feeling that you don't have the say or the influence that you once had. And you're concerned that your children might take a step or you're already observing your children taking steps away from what you have taught them and how you have shown them who God is and what He expects from His Word. That's uncertain. That's not just true for moms, is it? Because uncertainty is a reality for all of us. Are my well-laid plans for today going to change? I hate that. I am the worst at that. Ask Laura. She's got stories. Okay? When my plans change, that is hard. With me not being able to do anything about it. How will we afford schooling for the kids next year? What's my next step after college? Where will my next paycheck come from? Is my older vehicle or my AC unit going to give out? It's about that time of year, right? Is this discomfort I'm feeling physically, is this going to pass or could it be the sign of something more? What God has ordained for us and all the uncertainty that comes with that plan, it is concerning to us. So many unanswered questions, right? So many. Some in our midst here at Cornerstone are even facing or have recently faced those kinds of uncertainties, the uncertainties of God's plan that even seem harsh. How is it possible that this could possibly come from a loving, sovereign, caring God? How is that possible? But this passage shows us otherwise because the one true God has not left us without hope. He has provided His Word. 
He has spoken to us. And in it, He provides all that we need to know in order to have assurance because of what is reality, because of what is really true, even in the face of uncertainty. He will provide. He will direct. He will give wisdom. He does not leave or forsake. And He is able to always and forever sustain and deliver. That's truth. But He's also provided us with commands to obey in His Word. And we can't miss this active component of trust here. Obedience goes hand in hand with trust. Parents, as you entrust your children to His care, choose to obey the command to faithfully, consistently, even when it's hard, even when you seem to take one step forward and two steps back, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of your Lord faithfully. Choose to model peace-filled trust before them so they know that God is real. And not just from you, not just from what you say, but how you live. And as you entrust your financial situation to His provision, choose to obey His instruction to avoid an idolatrous heart, a covetous heart. As you choose to yield your plans, Chris, tomorrow for Him, for His purposes, despite what He may decide to change about them, choose to commit that day to Him through time in His Word and in prayer. That is trust in its most basic form. Choosing to believe what He has said while at the same time choosing to follow what He has said, what He has commanded. That is the full-orbed picture of trust. And we see it here in this passage. That is what Elijah and this mother choose to do by God's grace here. And they found this God, this Yahweh, this one true God to be fully and completely and unfailingly and inexhaustibly trustworthy. But then, just when life seems to be trending upward, just when this mother's faith in Elijah's God is strengthening, just when it seems that all is well again, they've probably been eating better than they had in years. Just when all seems right, verses 17 through 24 presents a crisis. Before, the concern seemed severe, but now she faces calamity, disaster, tragedy in an unimaginable way. But as she will learn, just as the one true God is trustworthy in the face of uncertainty, He is just as much so in the face of calamity and disaster. Choose to trust the one true God even in that, this passage teaches. Look first of all at how God's Word describes this calamity that befalls this mother in verses 17 and 18. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. 
The wording here is a little bit unclear as to whether or not the son is actually dead here, but I think we can assume by the mother's reaction and Elijah's prayer in the verses to come and the urgency of it and the overall point of the passage, we can assume that this child is dead. The physical evidence of, being, of there being no breath left. This is death. This mother is facing the type of situation most of us will face to one degree or another in this life, the death of a loved one. But this one, right on the heels of so much joy, right on the heels of so much trust enabling good stuff happening. Why this? Why so sudden? Why this roller coaster for me? Verse 17 and 18 show us that God's plan may include calamity. His plan may include great grief in verse 17. This mother faces the one thing that moms fear above anything else, the death of a child. But her response in verse 18, while it's natural and while it's understandable, it's telling for us and it's instructive for us as well because when any of us face calamity at a significant level like this, our response is often lacking. It's natural, but it's wrong. And we need to be honest about that. This phrase, what have you against me, could be interpreted, why did you interfere? If you hadn't shown up, this wouldn't have happened, she says. Which is a little ironic. Her complaint here in the middle of her grief, while fully understandable, it echoes what we see coming from the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. Do you remember that? Right after coming out of Egypt, she, just like them, assumed that she would have been better off without Yahweh's influence, better off without his care, that he only has ill planned for her. He's merely this infinite judge standing there ready to smite her down forgetting the other examples and instances of his steadfast love, his trustworthiness in her life before. She mirrors our own struggle by choosing to believe something. She chooses to believe the worst about God's intentions for her. The worst. The worst about his care for her or lack thereof. The very worst about his perspective on her. That thought process rings all all too true and all too familiar in our hearts too, doesn't it? Because this is us. This is us. And now the account rejoins Elijah as the primary character here in the next few verses. And here he provides a response worth emulating in the face of calamity. And yes, God's plan may include calamity, but... According to verses 19 through 21, God is working in the midst of that calamity and his working must lead to trust, even in the greatest of hardships. Look at verses 19 and 20. And he said to her, give me your son. You can feel the intensity of the emotion of this passage as we read it, right? Because these are humans like you and me. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed and he cried to the Lord 
O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon this widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Note here that Elijah is in the same position as the mother. Same position. He doesn't have the answers. He doesn't understand why God would do this. In fact, he does agree with the widow's assessment here that God is the sovereign cause of this. This is God's doing. Even though he stops a little bit short of her full reasoning of blame. But the fact is, we just don't understand his plan. Rarely do we understand what he's doing. And certainly we can never see the fullness of what his plan is. But his action in verse 21, Elijah's action, shows his undying trust. What does he do? He prays. Look at verse 21. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. We aren't told of the significance of Elijah's stretching out on the boy like this. It's kind of hard for us to even imagine what exactly that means. Perhaps he's acting out what he is calling God to do or something similar as other prophets do elsewhere when you read in the Old Testament. But the point is that we may not understand his plan, but we must choose to express our trust. To express that trust. Elijah does so here. This is all finite humans can do in the face of calamity. Choose to trust and express that trust to the one true God. That is our role. That is our recourse. But as we're about to see, that's not a helpless last gasp, last resort. It is exactly what we need to do. And this God is about to confirm again in amazing ways just how trustworthy He is because what follows is chronologically the first account of the raising of a dead person back to life by the power of God in all of Scripture. First time. These are some of the most memorable passages in all of God's Word where God raises someone from the dead. And this is the first one. Very first. The one true God vindicates His plan by showing in verses 22 through 24 that in our uncertainty, even in our calamity, God's power will bring Him glory. His power doesn't have any limits. Look at verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. Remember where this story takes place again. We're going to go back out to the broader context here again. This battle between Baal and Yahweh, between the false god of the Canaanites and the god of Israel. This battle of supremacy going on. In the Canaanite pantheon, Baal was the god that signified fertility and provision. Provision of children, provision of uh, the necessary things for daily life, to sustain life. That was Baal. So with this famine now gripping the land, ordained by God, Yahweh, and announced by his prophet, that's already a massive sign showing this pagan deity, Baal, to be false, to be lifeless, to be helpless. Baal's greatest gift to his followers 
was rain. That's kind of hilarious, actually, if you think about it. The one that they are worshiping and pleading to is the one that is failing them because he's false. He doesn't exist. He isn't real. He's lifeless. He's powerless. And the last two and a half years should have proven that. But now on the doorstep of the center of Baal worship, in a very small picture situation, this mother faces an enemy her former deity actually has no authority over. Even in Canaanite lore and religion, Baal has no authority over death. In fact, in Canaanite worship, Baal was fully subject to another false deity whose name was Mot. Mot was the god of death. And the annual dry season was actually illustrative of Baal being slain by Mot. Baal's death at Mot's hand, only to be revived again at the onset of the rainy season. That's how the pagan Phoenicians described and explained their seasons religiously. But Yahweh has no such limitations. He has authority to provide. He has the power to command death itself. This is the one true God. And he is trustworthy. So what then is our final interaction with this mother? Well, look at this dramatic, joyous conclusion in verses 23 and 24. And Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God's power has no limits and God's plan is for your good. Obviously, the son's return to his mother's arms alive. That's a good conclusion. We would all agree to that. That's the happy ending we were all hoping we would see. But what is the greatest good result? What is the truly and eternally good result here in this mother's life? It's not only her son's returning alive to her. It is the strengthening of her faith. The growth of of her knowledge of God. That's the best result here. Elijah, I now know that your God is real. He is sovereign. And his word in in you, through you in this case, as his prophet, his word is absolute truth. It is worthy of reliance. It is worthy of obedience. His plan is loving. His plan is designed to strengthen your knowledge of him. And in that sense, in that all-important eternal sense, whether your story ends like this mother's story or not, that plan will always end in what is truly good. Many of us cannot identify experientially with a calamity at, that, at this level, and that includes me. So I'm not asking you to believe this because I said so. But this mother can identify with your pain, with your calamity. And verse 24 is her testimony. Do you believe that? 
Most of us are likely not in the midst of a calamity, although some in our church family have experienced things just like this in the past. Some are experiencing very challenging situations right now in so many different forms. But the principles we've seen fleshed out through God's sovereign plan for this mother are for all of us. God's plan for you and me may include calamity at some point, but it will include uncertainty today, tomorrow, this week. It likely already does for you. We've already spoken about the uncertainty that looms for each day. Uncertainty about the future or our finances or our health or the loss of a loved one or that illness or that long road to recovery that you face. Or perhaps your uncertainty is in the form of of loneliness. Perhaps it takes the form of interpersonal challenges in some relationship. Or perhaps you face Mother's Day each year with mourning in your heart because the Lord's sovereign plan has withheld the joy of motherhood from you even though you so long for it. Or perhaps he has chosen to take a child home to be with him before you. Or perhaps it is your mother who is no longer with you These are painful, uncertain valleys, aren't they? But no matter our uncertainties or our calamities, our only recourse as finite human beings is to cast our hope and trust at the feet of the one true God, this all-powerful, this all-knowing, this all-sovereign ruler of the universe. The one that also at the same time has overly abundant and steadfast and unfailing love for you and has true good in store for you and planned for you. Of course, we ultimately see this exemplified in the God-man, in Jesus, in Christ, as he submitted to the plan of the Father. And through his submission and his trust, we have access to all that eternal goodness that God has in store as His children. Because Christ gave us the ultimate example of this. So instead of choosing to respond in bitter blame as if we have the sovereign knowledge of what is truly best, instead of expressing our response to uncertainty and anger, Choose instead to believe what he has said and to express your dire need for his help and to humbly submit to this plan. And how is that possible day in and day out? By allowing what he has revealed about himself to change you, to want that, to renew your mind about his character and about you, who you are to him and what your circumstances are designed to accomplish through him through the Word of God. The Word of the Lord is truth, she says in verse 24. Choose today to trust this infinitely trustworthy God no matter what. Let's pray. Father, there could not be a simpler 
command and calling, and yet there could not be one that is less easy to live, less easy to obey, less easy to, to commit to. Trusting you is hard. We are finite. We are full of doubt. We are full of fear. At times we are full of self-confidence that is so misplaced. Father, in whatever circumstance you are ordaining for us now or are about to ordain for us or things you have ordained for us in the distant past that still bother us, Father, whatever the circumstances, help us to trust you, to cling to what you have said, to follow what you have commanded in our response to go in prayer rather than fret, to yield our stress and our fears to you by expressing our trust. And then, Father, we look forward to seeing not just the exciting things you will do for us because you do those things for your people, things that bring joy, But Father, even more importantly, we desire that path because of how it transforms us to look more like your Son. So Father, accomplish that in your people as we learn to trust our trustworthy God. In Jesus' name, amen.